Amen. You can be seated. And good morning. So good to see you all this morning. Just have the joy of worshiping with you. Um, I don't know if he, he knew this, but as Justin was welcoming you and talking about the weakness of our flesh and uh, the sufficiency of Christ, um, I am feeling that a little bit more personally this morning. Um, my back is not functioning properly, and so I'm playing a little bit hurt. And so if I lean on this pulpit a little bit more than normal, just know I'm, we're going to be all right. But uh, that's what's happening up here, right? I'm not going to fall down, but Lord willing, I won't. Um, but we are here and uh, get to be together to worship and to study God's word. Um, and uh, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Acts. If you're a guest with us, uh, if I already said this once, I'm sorry, but my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church and uh, would love that opportunity um, to meet you as we'll be down front at the end of our time together. Uh, but we are working our way through this book as our practice is at City Church, just to work our way through books of the Bible most of the time. Um, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Um, if you were not with us last weekend, let me just briefly catch you up where we saw Paul and Silas uh, make their way to Philippi. We have the letter to the church um, in Philippi known as Philippians in our Bibles, and so you can read of that, but the, uh, the, the, their arrival in Philippi and the ministry there, um, we see in Acts chapter 16, where we saw uh, Paul preach the gospel, and uh, people are converted. One uh, little girl is redeemed from being a slave girl who was used as a fortune teller and brought into the family of God. We see uh, the miraculous uh, freeing of Paul and Silas as they've been thrown into jail for preaching the gospel, and God causes an earthquake to happen, and so even the, the it, 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 as God desires, sometimes he requires or allows earthquakes, things in the, every foundation of our lives to be shaken so that we might come to faith, come to know him. And so he did that in the life of the Philippian jailer. And because of all of their faithfulness and their ministry there in Philippi, uh, those who were opposed to Christ and those who were opposed to the gospel message, um, they try to force them to flee and to push them out of town. And ultimately, Paul and uh, uh, Silas left along with Timothy and Luke, and they begin or they continue their missionary journey and the work that they are on, and that is where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 17. Um, I have a map for you. I can show you very quickly of this journey before we read. Um, you can see, uh, and if you've been with us for a little while, you might remember that, that land off to the far side of the screen, that mainland is where they've come from. They've sailed across the sea up to Philippi, and they are going to journey all their way down to Berea, sort of the top, uh, uh, the end of that green line is where they'll find themselves uh, in Acts chapter 17, and then ultimately making their way down to Athens. If you're able, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 17, our text this morning, verses 1 through 15. Would you stand out of reverence for God's word? Um, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has also received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to sea, by sea to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Lord Jesus, we thank you as we do each week. We gather in this place for your word, for the blessing of being able to hold it in our hands, to study it, to know you through it. We thank you for the gospel message that is proclaimed to us by it. I pray that that message of hope, that we who deserve nothing but death, who were once far off from you, could be welcomed into your family through your love for us, by your sacrifice. I pray that that message of hope would sink deeply in our hearts and souls. If there's anyone who is hopeless this morning, who is grieving this morning, who is hurting this morning, may they find hope in the truth of your gospel. We thank you that this word is true and that we can anchor our lives to it. Help us, even more so today, to live lives centered and built upon the truth of your gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul and Silas, again, making their way on this journey, they make their way to a new city, Thessalonica. We have the letter to the Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians in our Bibles that are letters that Paul would write after being here in this church and planting this church, establishing this church. And as is their custom this time, whereas in the other parts where they were in, in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue that they could go and visit. This time they were able to find a synagogue. And while they went to the synagogue, it says here, it records for us that they went to the synagogue not just once, but for three weeks in a row on the Sabbath, they went to have the conversation, to proclaim the gospel, to teach those people of Thessalonica. And we learn through this as we study this passage, we'll see that there's the gospel truth proclaimed and that the gospel message is true. And in three different sort of circumstances or three different situations, both with the Thessalonians who receive the gospel, those Thessalonians who reject the gospel, and then ultimately through the Bereans, we see the veracity of this true gospel that we believe in. We see the testimony that the gospel is true, and we'll see that through these three different groups of people. Well, the first group of people, again, are the Jews who received them and heard them proclaim the gospel. And it says there in verse 2 that they went to the, on the Sabbath day, and it says, look closely, that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead proclaiming that this Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah. 
Again, these are Jewish people who have been taught and have been raised up to look for the Messiah, to be hoping for the Messiah, to be awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. And so Paul comes to them to proclaim to them that the Messiah you've been waiting for, the Messiah that you've put your hope in, the, the future uh, uh, of your life is, is rooted in the life that is in Jesus, that he is the Christ. And through the way that he talks with them, though, I think that there's, there's this great opportunity for us to see how it is that we go about in living out the testimony of the truth of the gospel. And that's through reason. The testimony of the gospel is established or is prevailed over people or with people through reason. Again, it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That word reasoned is could be translated or more fully translated as a dialogue. Paul, as he goes into the synagogue, he is proclaiming the gospel and he is teaching, he's informing the people, but he's doing it through a dialogue. He's having a conversation with them. He's explaining and teaching. This isn't some sort of just sort of beat them over the head with this information. He doesn't come to attack them. He doesn't come against them. He comes and it says that he reasoned with them, that he engaged in a dialogue with the Jewish people to help them understand why Jesus must come, why he had to go to the cross, and ultimately why he had to be raised from the dead and in doing so proved that he was the Christ. So often when we think about sharing the gospel, explaining the gospel, living the gospel out, we get confused about exactly how we are supposed to do that. But I love that the way it is illustrated here that it is through a conversation, through a dialogue. Sometimes we think of that gospel conversation as one-sided, as one way. Clearly, Paul is addressing, he's aware of the things that his hearers would be pushing back against. How could God die? How could the Messiah be someone who would be put on a cross? How could he be that low if he's God. There's all these ideas that they had in their minds from their upbringing, from being raised in a certain tradition that they could not reconcile that Jesus was the promised Messiah because of what he did. And so Paul engages with them in a dialogue to help them understand how Jesus was the Messiah. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, Paul had a lot of great words. Paul might have had a lot of great words. He wrote many of them down for us, but I want you to pay close attention to how he went about reasoning with them. It says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. This wasn't something that Paul just sort of came up, this wasn't a, an ad hoc conversation that he had with them. No, Paul was reliant upon, was leaning on, was utilizing the scriptures to have the conversation that with these people, to express the gospel and to teach them about Jesus. He used the scriptures. Again, you may think to yourself, well, I'm not very good with words. Sometimes we give ourselves a pass. We don't have the conversations. We don't engage in the dialogue. We don't welcome people into our lives and start to have a conversation with them about who Jesus is and why we've put our trust in him, why he is the hope of our lives. We don't do that because we're fearful. You may have said to yourself, I don't really know if I have the right words to say. I'm not sure I could do it that way. You know, Pastor Ryan, you are trained and you have all of this or that. Again, none of that is what matters. We all have been gifted with one very important tool, the word of God. He didn't reason with them out of his own creativity, 
or his own ability, his own strength. No, he talked about, again, as Justin alluded to, how he was weak, how he allowed so much of himself to be put down, and what he elevated was the scriptures. And so when we engage in conversations, yes, we do so as we understand our friends, we get to know our neighbors, we spend time with our coworkers, we understand their worldview, we try to get a perspective of how they build their lives. And every single one of us, if you, if, you, if you really take a few moments to think about it, I'm sure as you think about the people in your life who are far from Jesus, who do not have your faith, you can understand, you can paint a little bit of a picture of where they put their hope in or why they are so heartbroken in this situation, the challenges of life that they've experienced. And we take all of that information and we say, let me apply the truth of God's word, the scriptures to that, to point them to Jesus, to give them hope. This is why the third thing that he does there is it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained, he explained and proved that it was necessary, not just that it's what happened, but that it was necessary for Jesus to lay down his life, to go to the cross so that he could be raised again three days later. And that proved that he was the Messiah. That word that is used and translated for us as explaining is used by Luke in another place to paint the picture of the opening of the womb, giving birth, life coming. This is exactly what Paul did. He had a conversation and a dialogue with the Thessalonians to help them understand how Jesus was and proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And in doing so, he explained and new life came. We don't have to beat people over the head with the gospel. We have a conversation with them. We engage with them in their lives and we reason with them and we elevate the scriptures and the truth of God's word so that new life can come. Paul followed the model, the perfect model of Jesus himself in doing this. Do you remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus where he met his disciples? These were the men who spent three years walking with him, spending life with him, seeing all the miracles that he had done, doing all of the things, hearing his teaching. They were present for all of it. They were right there with him. And in Luke 24, Luke records for us after the resurrection, Jesus meeting these same disciples. Look what it says in verse 25. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Do you hear that connection? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Friends, this is Jesus and Jesus doesn't appeal to his own experience, his own creativity. He doesn't talk about his life. Remember when we did this and remember when we did that and all of those sorts of things. No, Jesus himself has a conversation with his disciples, those that spent three years with him. He talks to them and explains why it was necessary that he had to go to the cross to atone for sin, to pay the penalty for sin, for, to, to settle God's right justice and the wrath of sin, and then be raised up and entered into his glory. And what does he use the whole way to do that? The scriptures. He appeals to God's word. Paul, after him, does the same thing. He has a conversation where he explains, teaches through the scriptures, through utilization of the word of God to help them understand who Jesus is. 
This is why in this church, we study God's word. We put God's word first in our preaching, the way we preach, the way we teach in other venues as we gather in Bible studies and do all of the things. We are rooted to God's word because if we don't know God's word, if we don't have God's word rooted in our hearts and don't know how to apply it, don't know how to illuminate it, don't know how to communicate it to our friends, we're not gonna have the ability. They're not gonna believe because we convince them. They're going to believe when God meets them through his word. This is what we offer the world, his word. Exactly what Paul did here in Thessalonica. Well, as it always did, this caused a bit of a disruption. And the disruption, though, is not something that we just look at as a negative. Even the disruption is a testimony to the faithfulness and to the truth of the gospel. Yes, we see the testimony of the truth of the gospel as men respond to it through the testimony of man's heart. Look at what happens. Well, all of these believers, these new believers come into faith in verse four. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few, it says, that means a lot of the leading women, all right? But in verse five, after this great conversion has taken place, after this three weeks of Paul spending time in the synagogue, the Jews were jealous and they formed a mob Wicked men of the rabble, it says. The wicked men of the rabble, this is the sort of um, mischievous crowd in Thessalonica. The criminal element in Thessalonica. These were men that wanted to stir up trouble and were intent on stirring up trouble. And so they are the rabble. They are going around trying to create a problem in the city. And notice what they do. They go to this poor guy Jason's house. Jason, an innocent bystander, they, Paul and Silas aren't even there, but they figure out, they believe that, that Paul and Silas are hanging out in Jason's house. So they run into his house and they attack him and they drag Jason and a few of the brothers out, not Paul and Silas, but a few of the other believers who've come to faith in Christ and look at their attack. Pay close attention to what they say here. These men, Jason and these other friends, have turned the world upside down and they've come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are declaring that there's another king. That king's name is Jesus. The criminal element of the city knows the gospel. They know that there's another king, and his name is Jesus. Their hearts are so against King Jesus that they're trying to cause trouble, and they want to destroy his message but they themselves recognize that the world has been turned upside down. They've heard the testimony of Paul and Silas and the other Christian believers as, a, as the gospel has come to their city. They are fully aware. They're aware of what has happened. Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 after he leaves here and writes back to this church. He says to them, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, that's Acts chapter 16, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. In the midst of much conflict, they were faithful to preach the gospel. But it's the testimony of these men, this rabble crowd, their hearts prove the, the, the veracity of the gospel, that it is true. They are aware that the world has been turned upside down by the message. The gospel changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything about our lives. 
When they said that the world had been turned upside down, this is what they ultimately meant, and this is what the truth of the reality of the condition of our world is. The world was right side up in the garden when man had perfect fellowship with God. And then sin entered into the world, and the world was turned upside down then. And now, as King Jesus comes and declares his gospel message, and people receive that by faith, and one life at a time, his kingdom is built, the world is turned back right side up, where man has fellowship with God, as it should have been. And ultimately, we look forward to the day when it will be totally corrected, where that all people who are called by his name will have fellowship in the garden, fellowship in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be right with God. We'll have perfect harmony with God again. Sometimes what happens when our world is turned upside down by the message of the gospel, by the message that there's a king who's not the king that we've been worshiping, it gets hard for us, doesn't it? Many of us can remember that. Some of you might be walking in this even now. There's things the world is upside down and it's turned on its head. You've been holding on to some guardrails that you have sort of just established a little bit of a routine and a rhythm. You kind of know how to make it through life in the way things are going. And so you're trying to hold on to those things. And then Jesus turns it upside down and my back won't let me do this very well. But you're just kind of, you're trying to hold on. And you're holding on and Jesus is flipping out everything that you know about your life on its head and saying, it's all different. Everything that you thought, all of the condemnation that you thought you had to walk in, all of the judgment you thought you had to walk in, all of the, the heartbreak and the devastation and that life could ne- is hopeless, all of those things have been turned on their head by the message of the gospel. And sometimes when we see that and when we really experience that in our life, it's hard to let go of those things that we have established. You know, I can walk through my house when it is pitch black with no lights on. I specialize in that because I like to bless my wife by not turning the lights on when I get up in the morning. But if you move the walls around or you put me in another house where I haven't been before, you turn all of the lights out, I'm going to have a hard time navigating that. When we are awakened to the truth of the gospel, sometimes we're transported from one life to this new life in Christ, and it's hard for us to let go of our old ways. It's hard for us to let go of those rails we've built that have kind of helped us navigate through the darkness. Sometimes when the lights come on, right, Our eyes are a little bit fuzzy. We can't see very well. That's what's happening in the hearts of these men. That's why the rabble is so against this message because they don't want to be confronted with the reality that they've been worshiping the wrong king. There is a new king. His name is Jesus. And the way they react through their words and through their action testify to the truth of the gospel. Well, this crowd runs Paul and Silas out of town they want to push them along and so they leave and in verse 10 they make their way as we looked on the map down to this city called Berea the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived they went into the Jewish synagogue once again to the synagogue these Jews however it says of them were more noble than the others more noble than those in Thessalonica because they, look closely at these words, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They received the word with eagerness and they examined it daily to see if it was true. The gospel, the truth of the gospel is proven through the testimony of the word of God. Notice how they respond. They responded, they received the word 
with eagerness. With eagerness. There was an excitement for them in receiving the word of God and hearing the word of God and, 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 and seeing it taught to them and, and learning. And in that excitement, it's they, they, they turn to a, a, a life of examining and looking at the scriptures daily. It became part of their routine. It was the way they lived their lives. One of the things I love about our church, I think this is where I can have some non-sinful pride in our church, in this family of God, is that we have elevated the scriptures and there seems to be in this place an eagerness for God's word. You come here every week and whether it's me or someone else, you are offered not much other than God's word. I give you God's word and that's it. We study it, and yet you still come. And there's an eagerness to study. In our midweek gatherings, men's and women's Bible studies and fight clubs, we see people coming with an eagerness to study God's word, with a desire to know God through his word. Brothers and sisters, God is blessing that, has blessed that, and will continue to bless that as we press on in pursuing God's word together. We must have an eagerness for God's word. And that eagerness should lead us to a daily desire This is one of those things, perhaps you find yourself saying, I don't know if I'm that eager. I know you may be talking about some other friends in the room, but I'm not sure that that, that's me. Let me just invite you, ask God for that. Ask him through prayer, say, God, would you give me an eagerness to study your word? Would you give me an excitement about your word? Would you help me to want to study and to know your word? So many other things that can uh, fight for our attention. And we must be people who are eager to study God's word. And it says, second, that they examined it daily. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul says that we come to faith in Christ through the hearing of this word. If you're a believer today, it's because you've heard the word of God at some point in your life, whether it was moments ago or years ago, and you believed in that faith. And as we continue to study that word, as we're gonna grow in our faith, we're only going to be strengthened if we continue in it daily. If we're lacking, if we feel as if there's some sort of distance between us and God or that relationship is waning, anything like that, it's not because as we so often say, you've heard this from other people before, it's not that God has moved, it's that we have. And we need to reinvigorate our lives and ask God to give us an eagerness and an excitement for his word. A great preacher of old, one of my favorite dead guys, A.W. Tozer. It's always good to read guys who've gone to be with Jesus. He says in his book, Pursuit of God, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. If we're not growing in our faith, it's because we're not spending time with Jesus daily studying his word. Many of you, like me, have children. And I remember when my boys were younger, we'd go to the football games on Friday nights, we'd have a great time and They would disappear as soon as I showed up or we showed up. And then somewhere about the, you know, middle of the first and again in the middle of the second and then middle of the third, they'd run up and they'd ask for a dollar for some candy or a drink. Praise God, it used to be a dollar, first of all. But anyway, they had asked for that dollar to go get something. They'd show up and then they'd run off. They'd disappear and I'd never see them again. Come and ask me for the dollar, run away. 
Now, you can imagine if the relationship that I had with my sons was simply where they came looking for a dollar every now and again when they needed something, when they wanted something they desire, and that was the extent of the conversations, the time that we spent together, that'd be a really sad and broken relationship. And yet so many of us in our relationship with God and our complacency, we've settled that yes, one time in our lives we put our faith in Jesus and that's enough and we haven't spent time with him and his word. We don't spend time studying his word. We haven't had a desire to grow in that understanding of who he is and our faith seems to be waning and we're blaming him when all we've been doing is running up into the stands asking for a dollar every now and again and then forget about him and disappearing from his life and our life completely in the other days of the week. We need to be a people who have an eagerness, who study God's word and look what God's word calls those people. He commends those people as noble people, people of royalty who spend time with him studying his word. So as we study his word, let us be people who are eager to hear it, who, as it says here, examine what we hear. As you hear this word preached, I tell you guys all the time, listen to what I tell you from God's word. Listen to God's word. If there's ever a time where God's word and I are found in conflict, God's the one who's right and I'm the one who's wrong. Examine and test what you're taught, what you're told against the scriptures and do that regularly. Don't let your Bible time simply be on Sunday mornings. Spend time with God's word and in God's word. We're going to receive communion this morning. And as we receive communion, we're going to be reminded the practice of receiving communion is an act of remembrance. We're remembering our faith and we're remembering the one who secured our faith. We're remembering the one who purchased our lives through his broken body and his shed blood. We're going to do that this morning. And as we receive from him this morning, we receive from his table let me extend to you this invitation. Remember what Christ has done for you. And even as you come to the table, as we prepare to the, come to the table, maybe you sit and spend some time in prayer. Confess to God that yes, maybe some complacency has set in in your spiritual life. And ask him to restore that eagerness that you once had. Ask him to give you a hunger for himself, not the things that he can provide, but for him. And as we come to the table, let us remember that our lives weren't given to us freely. No, they were purchased for us through his blood. He's worthy of our lives because he gave his life for us. We were completely undeserving. I was undeserving of God's grace and mercy. And yet in his love for me, he willingly went to the cross, laid down his life. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Three days later, he took up his life again to prove that he was the Christ, that he is the hope that we can put our lives in, that we can believe in him. Let's remember that. And my prayer is that it might stir up perhaps some complacency that might have set in if there is any in your hearts. Ask God for that help. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, oh.